This is a message by Pastor Mark Fox of Antioch Community Church in Elon, North Carolina. For other sermons from Antioch, you can visit the church website at antiochchurchnc.org. Now, let's turn our hearts to the Word of God. Our text today is Genesis chapter 16. Now Sarai, Abraham's, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall have obtained children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she is conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from my mistress Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that, you, so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing. For she said, truly here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore the well was called Bir Leheroi. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. And Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of his son, who Hagar bore him, Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abraham, to Abram. Thank you, Todd, for reading and worship team. I also uh, love it when the, the worship team is all there and full and just no matter who is there, the Lord works and uh, leads us into worship. And um, today was no exception. Well, it's humbling to have the opportunity to preach uh, again this morning and grateful that in God's sovereignty and Dad's careful planning, I'm preaching on an incredibly low-key and inconsequential passage in our journey through Genesis. You know, I really hope next time to be able to preach on something that, you know, I don't know, maybe has a little more drama, perhaps has longer lasting effect on the world, even maybe as we know it now. This morning, we're going to have to just settle for another beautiful day in Abram's neighborhood. But having said that, I, I am excited. I am excited this morning. My, I am excited to be able to cover a first mention this morning. Dad has been pointing out first mentions to us 
uh, as we've walked through Genesis, and we have one today. Yeah, it's, um, <clears throat> it's the first mention of a marriage triangle uh, in the Bible. It never ended well, but this morning is the first mention of a marriage triangle between Abram and Sarai and Hagar. So you can get your pens ready to put FM first mentioned in the margin if you would like. Um, it's not a first mention that Abram and Sarai wanted to be known for, uh, but nonetheless, here it is. And isn't that the way that life works for us oftentimes, right? We, we have moments, and we'll look at these this morning, of where Abram had great moments of faith in the Lord, and then he had great moments of fall. Uh, and this morning, we're going to look at one of those. So the three points um, for this morning are, uh, I've borrowed from Alistair Begg. Um, they are waiting, self-effort, and God's grace. So first, <clears throat> waiting in verses 1 through 2. You know, the, the chapter starts out about <clears throat> 10 years into Abram and Sarai's stint in Canaan, and we see that Sarai is still barren, that that's been both a reality and a trial for her all throughout their marriage to this point. If you remember at the end of Genesis 11, uh, in verses 29 and 30, we read, And Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai. The name of Nahor's wife was Milcah, not to be confused with Micah. Uh, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah, now Sarai was barren. She had no child. So from the very start of their marriage, we see that it was not possible for them to have children up until this point. At least humanly speaking, it had not been possible. Right after that statement in chapter 11, at the start of 12, God told Abram to leave Haran and to take his family and go to, quote, go to the country, from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. So even though Sarai was barren from day one of their marriage, God was communicating even early with Abram to let him know that he had a plan for his family that God would make of, them, of him and his family a great nation. So fast forward 10 years to where we are today. And that promise from the Lord is still in effect. There's just one minor problem. Sarai is still barren. Kent Hughes says <clears throat> her barrenness was deemed a tragedy in ancient culture where it was a mark of success to have many children and a sad failure to have none. From Sarai's perspective, the flower was fading and time was running out. As they say, Sarai's biological clock was ticking, and both Abram and Sarai were having a difficult time when we see them here in this passage waiting. Why is it such a big issue for us to wait? I mean, it always has been, hasn't it? None of us, if you are honest, and I hope we would be, if, we, if I said, raise your hand if you really enjoy waiting, I don't think anyone would say yes, right? I mean, we struggle with it from day one. Babies are notoriously impatient. Uh, notorious, I mean, they cry when they need to sleep. They cry when they need to eat. They cry when they need a diaper change. And if we don't get to those things quickly, it escalates to screams in a heartbeat. 
and it does not get any better as they get older. Toddlers are constantly asking us when, aren't they? When? When can I eat? When can I go play? When can I watch the movie? When can you play with me? When can I have ice cream? When can I have that toy that I just passed and I've never seen in my life, but I desperately need it now? We don't actually get any better at waiting. Well, maybe we do, but we, we, we still struggle, I should say, with waiting as we get older. We as adults uh, have to admit that we ourselves have a difficult time waiting. We just get a little more subtle, perhaps, in our, uh, in our waiting, maybe a little more passive-aggressive sometimes in our communication around why, we want, why we're waiting. How many of you as, as men have walked into the kitchen when your wife is cooking dinner and said something like, hey, honey, uh, anything I can do to help you move dinner along? If you have done that, it did not go well. Or wives, how many of you, in an effort to hurry your husband along to fix something around the house that he's told you for a while now that he was going to fix, has said something to the effect of, hey, babe, um, you know, if you're never going to get to that, I can call a professional. Would that be helpful? (laughs) That did not go well either, I assure you. We don't like to wait, right? None of us do. That's the point. But waiting is a part of life. And not only that, it's a part of our growing up. Uh, We see in Ephesians 4.13 that it is a part of our growing up into mature manhood or womanhood. As Alistair Begg says, "If if we find it difficult to wait, then we will have a difficult time walking by faith. Waiting reveals things about our lives that nothing else will do. Our character is grown during times of waiting or trial, and our true character is also revealed during times of waiting. Alistair Begg goes on to say that the great and precious promises of God referred to in 2 Peter 1, 4 and following are relatively seldom given with any kind of time restraint so that we are exhorted to wait not with a specific time revealed, but we are to wait until a specific event occurs. Now, there's all the difference in the world because most of us find it okay to wait if we're told to wait until Friday. Or even better, if we're told to wait until 8 o'clock. But you take away the Friday, or you take away the 8 o'clock, and you just tell us to wait, and you've got a completely different ballgame. But that's true of us. It's not just of our kids who want to know how long or what day the promise will come true. We want that too. But that's not the way God works so many times. And that's not the way he worked in this passage with Abram and Sarai. There was no, wait 10 years, Abram. In 10 years, I will fulfill this promise. Or in nine months from today, you will have a child. It was just, wait, and I will make of you a great nation. These are the promises of God. And yet the question that faced Abram and Sarai was this, would they allow the questions of their heart to overturn their faith, or would they allow their faith to overturn the questions of their heart? That, I would suggest to you, is a question that we face every single day we live our lives. You know, Abram and Sarai had waited a long time, and we we have a difficult time waiting 10 minutes 
in the grocery store line sometimes. They had waited 10 years when God had told them, I will make of you a great nation. I will give you offspring as numerous as the stars of the sky. They had waited a long time. They had been through much in their lives. They had um, been through many trials and tribulations, many of which they had risen to the occasion, so to speak, and were bold and confident in their faith in the Lord. But now, in this moment, when Abram and Sarai are looking at each other and they're seeing that the years and the wrinkles are increasing and there's still no child, they allowed the questions of their heart to overturn their faith. Sarai said to Abram, Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant, and it may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. It brings us to the second point, self-effort. Looking at verses 3 through 6. You know, it, it only takes a moment, doesn't it? A moment of weakness, a moment of selfishness, <clears throat> a moment of doubt, a moment of pride, a moment of fear. We've all experienced these moments, and by God's grace, most moments like these don't change the course of our lives or, or of history from then on. But for Abram and Sarai, this moment did. If there was ever a moment in Abram's life when he needed to display strong leadership in his home as he did outside of his home, this would have been that moment. We've talked in recent weeks how Abram went from fear to faith and back again over these last several chapters. And starting in chapter 12, we see this roller coaster ride that was Abram's faith. There was a high point in chapter 12. God promised to make him a great nation. There was a low point. While in Egypt, in fear for his own life, Abram told Sarai, who was actually his half-sister, so it was only maybe a half-lie, but that's a whole lie, right, kids? Half-lie is a whole lie. Okay. Um, Abram told Sarai, hey, look, just tell her, tell them you're my sister, and it'll be fine. I don't know what's going to happen to you, but I'll be okay. That was a low point in his life and probably in their marriage. Uh, high point, Genesis 13, God told Abram, all the land that you see, I will give you and your offspring forever, right? That was a high point. Low point, Abram and, Sarah, excuse me, Abram and Lot separated and Lot was taken captive. There was a high point next. Abram cleaned the enemy's clocks with a handful of men. I think that was the literal translation um, and he saved Lot. That was a high point in his life. Next, he was blessed by Melchizedek. Next, in chapter 15, the last two weeks, we've seen that Abram was given in a vision, or told in a vision, fear not, I am your shield, Abram. Your very own son will be your heir. Then God cuts a covenant with Abram in a dramatic scene with animal sacrifices and communicated his plan to Abram and his descendants. And it would seem that coming out of this, out of chapter 15, that Abram would be basking in the wonder that is God's promises to his life. That his faith would be stronger than ever. Kent Hughes says about this point that he, he says, imagine the elevation that then coursed through Abram's soul. 
His faith naturally soared off the charts. Surely this would render him impervious to distrust. We would think. Now he would never fail to trust God. We would think. Perpetual obedience would characterize Abram from this moment on. We would think. If only Abram had the words of Paul in 1 Corinthians 10 in this moment when Paul says, Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stand, what? Take heed, lest he fall. How often this is true for us in moments when we're riding high, when it seems everything is going well, when it seems like it has been going well for a long time and we're starting to get comfortable and we let down our guard and in moments like these we are perhaps most susceptible to fall. I was reminded of the quote we've often quoted here this week in my study of Hudson Taylor who said, God's work done in God's way will never lack God's supply. God had made it clear to Abram what his work would be. I will make of you a great nation. God had made it clear to Abram the way in which it would be accomplished in chapter 15. Your own son will be your heir. Now, at that time, Abram was only married to Sarai, the way God had intended and designed marriage to be. And so the the natural implication there was that his son would come forth from Sarai to fulfill God's promise. So God, Abram had been told what, and Abram had been told the way, but he had not been told when. Jen Wilkin said of this passage that God has now more than once told Abram, this is how I'm going to do what I'm going to do. But, God, but time wears on, faith wears thin, and we find ourselves eyeing self-reliance. So, you know, in, in any, any household fight, what's one of the first questions that's asked? Who started it? Who did it? Who did what? We always want to know who, to blame, who is to blame. Who was at fault in this chapter? I mean, who, who was to blame in this chapter? You could rightly make the case that Abram, was the head of the home, and therefore he was primarily to blame. And I think you would be right. But he was not the only one with a black eye uh, in in this scene. Kent Hughes states, the thing that shouts loudest here in this story is that there was not an honorable character in the lot. All were ignoble. Abram was the worst. He was pathetic, passive, impotent, and uncaring of either woman. Neither woman had compassion on each other. Sarai was worse, but you get the idea that Hagar would have done the same if she could. Notwithstanding, Hagar was the prime victim, and Sarai was a not-so-distant second. Begg gets a little more specific when he says, Sin displayed itself in each of the three characters in three specific ways. Hagar, in verse 4, becomes proud. That's really a false pride. Yeah, I did this. Surai in verse 5 deals with the sin of false blame. You did this. And Abram in verse 6 opts for false neutrality. I'm not in this. Hagar was used and abused by Abram and Sarai in this passage, but she does not come out of this mess with clean hands. 
Her pride and contempt for Sarai helped to drive a wedge between them and belittled an already low and downtrodden Sarai. Sarai had the idea in the first place to bring Hagar into the picture to help God keep his promise, right? Because he needed help. It was obvious to her. But then when it seemed to work and she realized she wasn't getting credit for it or Hagar now despised her or thought she was higher than her, she started to blame the consequences of her own idea on Abram. Abram, like Adam, in the garden, watched as his wife walked headlong into doubt and sin. And then, like Adam, he joined her and entered into that sin by taking another wife to help God keep his promise. Then after Hagar had been used by them to get what they thought they wanted, Abram abdicated his responsibility yet again and acted as if he was a neutral party and told Sarai, do with her as you will. It's not like she's my wife. Beg said, Abram should have said no, right? We know we, when we say, well, what should have happened in this moment? Abram should have said, no, we're not going to do that. But he thought it would be easier, perhaps, to say yes. And look at the chaos that was caused. Disharmony, contempt, and unhappiness breaks into their home. Does that sound familiar to you? Not necessarily this scene, right? But we can't. Just sit here and cast stones at Abram and Sarai. I mean, we, we could. It would. We, 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 they were to blame. They were at fault. They sinned, right? All, all of us would be able to rightly say, you know, I mean, no weakness in my life has ever led to thousands of years of bloodshed and turmoil between the Jewish and the Arab people. And on that, that point, we would be right. But the bigger point here is not the size of the issue or the noise level of the chaos that ensued. It's the fact that so often in our lives, both big and small, we too take matters into our own hands because we're tired of waiting on the Lord. And we too, if we're not careful, as Jeremy pointed out a few weeks ago, believe wrongly that the end Maybe it does justify the means. You know, I, I think if, if I ask the question, do you really believe that God keeps his promises? Everyone would likely raise their hands, but all of us struggle with that, don't we? At times we struggle. We have those moments of doubt where we say, God, do you really keep your promise? I mean, it's been a long time. There are many places in Scripture we can go to to be reminded. Joshua 21, 43 through 45 says, Thus the Lord gave to Israel all the land that he swore to give to their fathers, and the Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their fathers. Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. 1 Kings eight fifty six says, blessed be the Lord who has given rest to his people Israel according to all that he promised. Not one word has failed of all of his good promise, which he spoke by Moses, his servant. And lest we think that keeping promises was just an old covenant thing for the Lord, 
Hebrews 10, 23 says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Again, I believe that if I asked how many of you are confident that the Lord keeps his promises, most of us at least would say yes. I think that if we asked Abram, Abram, do you believe that God keeps his promises? He would say yes. But we still fall into this crazy cycle of faith and doubt in our lives, in our moments of weakness, in our moments of fear or worry or pride. This is an oversimplified pattern of maybe what happened with Abram and Sarai, but um, I think maybe it, it still applies today. I call it the, the wandering path. Uh, God makes a promise. Man gets impatient. Man takes matters into his own hands to help God keep his promises. Man makes a mess of things. Man blames God and others for his mess. Man's mess results in consequences for himself and pain and hurt for others. God works all things together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And guess what? God keeps his original promise. You know, I I wish in my own life that it looked a lot like this instead. God makes a promise. I believe it in faith. I wait patiently for the Lord, and God keeps his promise. (laughs) Isn't that a more simple path? Lord, help us. Give us strength to truly trust you and to truly wait. You know, if Abram and Sarai had believed God in this moment of their lives, just think of how the world, even today, would be different Kent Hughes speaks of this sobering reality and consequences of their choices when he says how tragic the expediencies, compromises, and shortcuts of real life can be. True, there is grace and forgiveness for all who turn to Christ. Christ comes to the Hagars in the wilderness. Christ comes to the miserable Abrams and Sarais in the camp, and he ministers grace. Very often, God restores the years the locusts have eaten up. God gives his repentant children joys along the way, laughter and serendipities. But some sins are not undone in this world. There are times when life moves from bright color to monochrome and never back to its original vividness. Sometimes life feels that way, doesn't it? Are you plagued by sin or moments in your past when you think that God forgot and you took matters into your own hands? Or did life once look brighter for you than it appears to look now? Do you struggle to remember the promises of God for His children or perhaps just believe that they apply to you? If so, as we're about to see next, God is a God who sees. He is a God who hears. And Hagar is about to be reminded of that. We see in verse 7 that the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness. And opinions vary on exactly who this angel was. 
One commentary on this reads, the angel, or excuse me, the Hebrew word for angel may also be translated messenger. And there's an element of mystery about this figure. When the angel of the Lord speaks, his words are perceived as God's words. Therefore, the impression is given that the angel is identical with God. On this basis, some Christians believe that the angel of the Lord is the pre-incarnate Christ. Others, however, hold that the reference here is to an angel who has been commissioned to speak as God's representative, and so the angel's words are God's words. Now, we, we don't know for sure, but regardless of this, what we do see is that what we do need to notice in this passage is that the compassion and the tenderness of the Lord was poured out upon Hagar in this moment when she was alone in the wilderness. Jen Wilkin reminds us that the story of this angel meeting Hagar at the well points forward to Christ, right? Meeting women and outcasts at the well and providing hope. Just like that woman in John 4 that Jesus met, the angel of the Lord in this story knew the plight of Hagar, knew that she was alone and afflicted, and assured her that the Lord had heard her and sees her. Hagar comes to this realization in verse 13 when she says, You are a God of seeing. For she said, Truly here I have seen him who looks after me. This is a beautiful reminder to us of the way that the Lord looks on and sees us. He hears us as well. But sometimes, like in this passage, God doesn't just take the pain away. In fact, in this case, he sent her back to it. (laughs) The angel said, go back to Sarai and submit to your master. You know, sometimes we, I think, um, we use the measuring stick of the pain has, has lessened. The pain is gone. Therefore, I know God heard me. But sometimes the pain does not leave. God just reminds us that he is still right there in the midst of it with us, walking with us. God might not relieve your pain, but he will always be present through it, just as he reminded Hagar in the wilderness when she was all alone that, Hagar, I see you, I'm with you, and I will be with your family for generations. God gave Abram a prophetic vision, right, of what was to come with his family. And he also spoke to Hagar in the wilderness, as we just read, that she would also have uh, a a family that the Lord would care for. Kent Hughes speaks of this when he says the patriarchal stories in Genesis feature numerous instances where individuals are promised descendants. But Hagar is the only matriarch to receive such a promise. Hagar's descendants would be included in Abram's descendants, as numerous as the stars. She was an honored woman. But he goes on to say that this critical, in this critical moment that the historical reality was that Ishmael's offspring would become a thorn in God's people, both under the old and new covenants. Little did Abram and Sarai imagine that their shortcut would originate a conflict that would run for millennia and that oceans of blood would be spilt. 
Abram, the father of the faithful, had begotten a wild man instead of a child of grace. How tragic was Abram's expediency. As a result of the union between Abram and Sarai came the Arab people, came the Islamic religion, came war that continues between Isaac and Ishmael. Was the end of all of this worth the means? Abram and Sarai thought that by taking matters into their own hands, they would expedite God's promise, bring it about by a different route. But in the end, they did not get the child of promise through Hagar. They set in motion a people and a nation who has been at odds with the Jewish people for thousands of years, and they had to wait 13 more years before Isaac came. Ishmael was 13 years old when Isaac was born, and one has to wonder how things would have been different in all of these points if they had trusted God in that moment. Alistair Begg says of this passage that faith and waiting go hand in hand. We don't know faith until we learn to wait. Faith and waiting are nurtured in obedience. We don't know either faith or waiting until we learn to work until we learn to do God's work God's way. Faith while waiting is hard. Our flesh longs to live by what it can see or what it can control. But God's work must be done God's way. Um, just a few closing thoughts as we wrap things up this morning that I, I want to leave with you. You know, as that quote just said by Beg that faith and waiting are nurtured in obedience, let us commit to nurture our faith and strengthen our will to wait through our obedience to the Lord day by day by day. You know, it's, it's like so many things in our lives. When we get to that major moment of decision, it's all the little decisions that preceded it where we said, yes, Lord, yes, Lord, yes, Lord, that gives us the grace sometimes in that moment to say, I don't like it, I don't know, I don't see but yes, Lord. When it seems that God has forgotten you or his promises, pray, surrender, pray, surrender. Why do we pray? Because we serve a God who sees all and because we need to pray. Why do we surrender? Because God's will must be done his way. Less of me, O Lord, and more of you. Lastly, Hebrews 4.16 says, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. I was, I was listening to one of the daily devotionals by John Piper the other day, and this was the topic of that devotional. And I thought, wow, how, how, um, what a great tie-in that is to this. And he says in that uh, in that devotional, that the promise here is not merely that we find grace to help in time of need, but that the grace is well-timed by God. When we wonder about the, future, about the timing of future grace, we must think on the throne of grace. Nothing can hinder God's plan to send grace when it will be best 
for us. Future grace is always well-timed. I was reminded of the words of this song um, yesterday, Hold On to Jesus, and I, I made an, uh, a last-minute decision to add them, but I thought they were appropriate. Like a child holding on to a promise, I will cling to his word and believe. As I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me, so I will hold on to the hand of my Savior. I will hold on with all of my might. I will hold loosely to things that are fleeting. And I will hold on to Jesus for life. Saints, let us hold on to Jesus. Hold on to His promises and not let go. Let us be reminded this morning that we can draw near to the Lord and find grace for a well-timed help. Let's pray. Father, this is a difficult passage this morning, and yet we see your grace in and through it, just as we see your grace when we take our eyes off ourselves and we look to you in those moments of trial and in those moments of waiting and where we feel like we are in a dry and weary land. And Lord, I pray that you would pour out your spirit upon us today to remind us anew and afresh that you are there, that you're walking with us, that where we are, you have been and you know the way. Lord, that you see the big picture, even if we only see this moment. Lord, give us the grace, give us the strength, give us the endurance, the faith, that we need in those moments to say, yes, Lord, we believe. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Mark Fox of Antioch Community Church in Elon, North Carolina. Antioch meets every Sunday for worship at 10 o'clock a.m. at 1600 Powerline Road in Elon. You can download other messages by Pastor Fox at antiochchurch.cc. You can also learn how to order his books or subscribe to his blog at jmarkfox.com.